0: Awesome. Okay. Ready? Yep. Let's go. Let's laugh. We are imperfect after all. Okay. (laughs) Hello and welcome to the Imperfect Us Podcast.
1: I'm Leanne Camilleri.
0: And I'm Lisa Downs. As hosts of the Imperfect Us Podcast, we share relatable stories that celebrate we are all perfectly imperfect humans leading perfectly imperfect lives. We discover practical and evidence-based strategies that draw on the science of well-being and positive psychology that help us to uncover the barriers that might hold us back from being our authentic selves and turn them into opportunities so that we can show up more consistently doing what we really aspire to do and who we want to be.
1: We acknowledge the Wadawurrung and the Kaurna people as traditional custodians of the beautiful lands on which this podcast is being recorded. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and extend this respect to other First Nations people who are here with us today. So let's get started. are speaking with Dr. Rochelle Brunton, a UK-trained educational psychologist who has spent over 12 years working with teachers, children, young people and their families within educational settings in both England and Australia. In 2006, Rochelle spent time in Belfast working as part of a project to promote cross-community understanding between Catholic and Protestant communities affected by trauma. It was here that Rochelle gained insight into how prejudice and discrimination can occur in response to human differences. Rochelle completed her doctorate at the University of Nottingham, where the focus of her dissertation was autism. She has since developed a special interest in neurodiversity and inclusion, particularly helping neurodivergent people discover their strengths. Rochelle currently works in clinic with neurodivergent children, teens, and their families. She also works as a leadership coach specialising in working with neurodivergent adults, many of who lead very successful careers and family lives. Rochelle is the author of a children's book called All Except Winston, a book about difference, inclusion and finding one's strengths. So let's get started. Rochelle, we are so excited to be speaking with you today and we would love for you to tell us what led you to the wonderful work that you do.
2: Okay, well, I'm very excited, you know, to be here speaking with you both. I'm privileged, I think, to do this work because uh, it's extremely satisfying and, you know, I feel like I have a purpose in my life. What led me to this work was uh, actually doing a doctorate um, in educational psychology, which I did, obviously, through the University of Nottingham. And my supervisor at the time, uh, Dr Nick Durbin, I remember sitting down with him and he said, oh, what do you want to do? What do you want to do as your topic? I was always interested in positive psychology, the focus on strengths rather than a focus on someone's deficits. I'd always seen psychology as, you know, very clinical and based on deficits. And even the DSM, you know, focuses on disorders, Mm -hmm. which I really dislike (laughs) immensely. So I've always been focused on that strength-based positive psych. But Nick said to me, well, how about, how about autism? I thought about it and I thought, yeah, it's, it's great. Autism is, is interesting and it's something we'd focused on. You know, my work as a psychologist, um, I saw a lot of children on the autism spectrum. Mm-hmm. And as we know now, it's not really a spectrum. It's more like a, you know, it's not linear And I always thought autistic people, the autistic mind was incredible because Mm. these children that I work with always saw something that I didn't see and they were teaching me every day about something new and I thought this was incredible. And so I thought, well, yeah, I'm going to do that. And so I focused actually on a program that they were running in Nottingham and that was the, the Early Bird program which was a parenting program for parents of children with autism i sorry should I say who are autistic don't particularly you know because I think having autism is an addition to being human I think you're born autistic so mm. I might you know sometimes I might you know there might be a slip of the tongue with with autism but I'll you know, correct myself there. And this parenting program was having a lot of success in Nottingham. So I did study really focused on what were the mechanisms that was working for parents on this program. And really, it was, you know, really the shared opportunities and reduced isolation and and the ability to cope, you know, with stress that was successful as part of the program. So it's it was really interesting getting those parents together to share their experiences. And in that, I met the parents of these beautiful children, young people. And listening to their experiences, I realized that many of those parents were also neurodivergent and often struggled growing up, and their struggles were hidden, but they've managed to try and overcome them in one way or another. So it was really interesting. It was, it really opened my eyes. So I'd, I, what led me then after that, I focused more on that in my work. And then my son and daughter, so my son at age five was displaying all, this, all the signs <laughs> and he was lining up marbles and he went into school and the first thing he did was say, "Mummy, school's too loud. I don't like the bell. It's scary. And I was thinking, oh, (laughs) what's going on here? Yes, and that's when it hit me. (laughs) So, well, it's a bit of a surprise. But then, you know, my husband, who's amazing, uh, he's an engineer. And, yeah, so he also recognised, oh, yeah, I guess I'm a little bit, you know, a little bit (laughs) flame in ways. (laughs) And, and since then, he's also had a diagnosis of ADHD. Mm. And I can also relate to that diagnosis as well. Uh, mm. So the two of us, and I think our whole family is neurodivergent. Mm. Mm. Wow. So it's been an
1: interesting 10 years. <laughs> That must have been quite powerful, though, Rochelle, to have that. I'm not sure if it's the right word, but that awakening, mm. you know, because to understand that within your children or to see that, to, mm. to learn that, and then to see that within yourself and the people in your family. I wonder, does that make it better? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I feel privileged to
2: have the experience at home because, mm. I mean, I am passionate about the work anyway, but. I mean, don't get me wrong; it's not it's not roses all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, has any
0: family got roses? No, I'm not sure.
2: Absolutely <laughs> not. No, but I guess yeah, I feel privileged to be able to experience this, particularly as a psychologist. But I can't always be the psychologist mum. And no. yeah, so it's it's definitely a learning curve for me. But it, it helps me in my work with children and families mm. who are neurodivergent. Mm. And actually, you know, I guess with adults and children, because I do work with the whole age range, really.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and, and the whole a- age range is, is also in, in my house. And also, I guess being neurodivergent myself helps me understand my son and my daughter in ways because, I, you know, obviously everyone's so different. You know, yeah. being neurodivergent is like a fingerprint, the brain looks completely different in Mm -hmm. everyone the media doesn't quite you know get that and you've got characters in the media like sheldon cooper characteristically you know this geeky character who you know knows everything and has no social skills has difficulty with communicating needs and takes everything literally And it's not like that, you know. It's not like that in everyone. Everyone looks so different. You know, Mm -hmm. you can have autistic people who are quite good socially and you would not pick it up at all. But there might be little quirks or nuances that you might pick up in an assessment and it can be hidden because autistic people also mask as well. Mm. Um, and, And I was going to talk about masking a bit later. Yeah, um, but as a you know, as a means of being able to to cope, it's a survival strategy, mm. you know, to be able to mask and try and fit in, you know, to gain friends, to get a job. I'm off on a tangent here, but uh, <laughs> <you> <laughs> it's,
0: it's really good back. though to to raise that in the fact mm. that you know, and I know we see that in schools too, where, mm. and I suppose you know that character Sheldon. You know, mm. for a lot of people open the doors to neurodiversity a little bit. So people then were looking for that was the only, I suppose, characteristics of, you know, people who might have autism. Mm. And in actual fact, that's not true. So then those people who are going through some of these awarenesses mm. then try and hide that if they don't think that that's something that's appropriate. So it makes it a bit more challenging for them. So mm. I can understand why they mask that or they're being told, you know, that's inappropriate, don't do that. You know, there's sort of different um, nuances, but luckily now there is a bit more of a, I suppose, celebration and you know, embracing who our neurodiverse people are, and also what they contribute to our society. Because there's some pretty incredible people in our world with neurodiverse brains.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. You know, there's, there are lists and lists of people. And even going back to the great artists and inventors, I mean, most of them were autistic or had some type of neurodivergence that, may, that allowed yeah. them to think differently and out of the box. Mm, and yeah. So creative. And I mean, creativity does come with this neurodivergence. It's a huge strength.
0: Yeah. Well, they talk about a lot of them being, you know, the dreamers, the adventurers, the pioneers, the change makers, you know, there's, they yeah. have such amazing qualities to be able to harness, to be able to make this world a better place. And I think that's really, really, really important.
2: Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I even learned the other day that Jamie Oliver, you know, the, yes. shared, I didn't realize, I didn't realize he, he has a diagnosis of ADHD and dyslexia. Yeah. It surprised me. Well, it it, it did and it didn't you know in yeah way. yeah because I haven't seen anything written about him about that so I mean that's someone who I've always sort of followed when I was in the UK because I love <laughs> <this bit. laughs> so, I I to yeah.
0: share that a lot with our family members who you know when they felt that they had dyslexia or ADHD you know they'd be really concerned that it was some sort of problem and we'd talk about but hang on a minute there are people in the world who do have ADHD and once they start to realize oh there is the goodness for this person, Mm. and they have got amazing qualities, Mm. then the story changes from that terrible disaster that they come somehow concoct to a bit more reality of, oh, this is just what they have, but they also have these talents and strengths to to improve.
1: Rochelle, is that because we have, as a society, become quite... I don't know that good's the right word, but, but, you know, we tend to label people, we put them in boxes and, you know, I can see how dangerous that can be really. Mm-hmm. And I can see how also like within myself, just trying to have the conversation and thinking, oh, is that the right wording? Is that, you know, trying mm-hmm. to be, to speak about it in the right way, mm-hmm. but not really fully understanding the, the best way to do that. So I'm sure as we go along in our conversation today, you are going to help myself and our listeners, uh, yeah. you know, understand that better.
2: Absolutely, I, I know what you're saying in terms of the human condition. I think to put people into boxes <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to try and understand, you know, the world a bit better. I also uh, work with neurodivergent people who might be transgender or don't identify as they or them, and people around them don't cope well with that because mm. it's and and you see it on social media as, as well like who are you what are you you know mm. and that's a tricky situation too I mean we I mean I think humans like to put things in boxes and we like to have defined categories but the world is more gray than it is black and white mm. and so that's a challenge We know that you're
0: really passionate about neurodiversity and we're just wondering, could you share some insights into what it is, but also how it might show up? And I'm really keen to find out a little bit more about the importance of why we need to embrace it and celebrate neurodiversity.
2: Okay. So neurodiversity really describes our diverse neurology. It's a natural brain variation, which is really part of our existence. It was coined by sociologist Judy Singer, who is autistic. And she's also Australian, <laughs> which is oh, cool. Yeah. So, about one in five people are, are neurodivergent. I've seen a couple of statistics. Some people say one in four, some people say one in five. That is, you know, that's incredible when you think about it. Yeah. So, you know, think about neighbors, friends, you know, someone that you know. It could be many many of those people who don't actually know that they're neurodivergent. There is, you know, some level of brain difference. So, I mean, these conditions range from dyslexia, dyspraxia, ADHD, and, of course, we've talked about autism, and also includes bipolar as well. Mm. So it's just a different way the brain is, is functioning, a different neurology, and many overlap. So, for example, like I said before, you know, with ADHD, um, you can also have a diagnosis of dyslexia or an autism and other diverse conditions. So usually one doesn't come alone. Usually uh, a neurodivergent brain usually functions differently. So there might be other areas of the brain that might be described by something in the DSM. <laughs>
1: That beautiful manual that I love. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think and anyone our, loves it. For our listeners, Rochelle, yeah. if they don't know what the DSM is, yeah. could you just clarify what that yeah, is? Yeah, sorry.
2: It's uh, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of what is it, Mental Disorders. It's a, a manual that psychologists, psychiatrists use as a way of Diagnosing uh, certain conditions. The latest is the DSM five, and I think I'm not sure. There's going to be a few changes coming to that. I think, mm. and they're due to probably update. And I'm hoping that the update will include <laughs> will mm. definitely make some changes. But I, I haven't seen anything around that, or you know, in terms of, of autism or some of the other diagnoses where they might drop disorder. But that means I'll have to change.
1: It's the title, (laughs) won't they? Rochelle, in a previous conversation that you and I had, you really helped me understand the difference. You put it introspective around computers and explained that although they all sort of do the same job, they all sort of work a little bit differently. Mm. It really helped me to understand that just because we work a little bit differently, there's nothing wrong with us.
2: No, absolutely not. And, yeah, like that analogy with the computer, I mean, we it is, you know, differences in processing the world and our experiences. So it's a different way of you know processing experience in the world of thinking and feeling. And it it really does affect the way uh, we function, but not in a not in a negative sense. I mean it can I think I think it's you know the world is really designed for. The neurotypical, neurodivergent people process the world differently. So the way they think, the way they feel, the way they see the world is affected by their neurodivergence. So, And also it's interesting because neurodivergent people, they're very interest-led. So the brain is very focused on what interests them a lot of neurodivergent people, not all, but, and whereas more than neurotypical brain, I don't really like that term <laughs> is more what's important. What do I need to do now? You know, what's next? Mm-hmm. It's not so much interest-based. So I, I definitely find that with myself. Sometimes my interests, well, the majority of the time, <laughs> my interests do, do take over. Mm. Yeah. And then I think, oh, okay, I really need to work on that. You know, um, I need to be mindful of that all the time, because my brain is always focused on, oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's interesting. And I can get distracted and drawn into that. Mm. Yeah. I mean, just like this topic, <laughs> I absolutely love this topic and I deep dive into this topic, but uh, it can be, the whole world could be sort of blowing up or, you know, lots of things around me happening and I'll just be drawn into that, you know? So it's, it's interesting how the the
1: difference can
2: just affect the way you function every day.
1: And, you know, it's interesting, the neurotypical Label, I guess. When I think about all of us in the in the world, we're all very different, aren't we? So, what makes one person neurotypical and the other neurodiverse? When we all bring different things to the table, as it mm. is. That's a that's a very very
2: good question. Um, <laughs> the thing that does is that lovely manual, <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: which needs to be changed.
2: Yeah. <laughs> to be changed so it really is as i don't know is it as simple as that i'm not sure because then if that wasn't around you know and if we Mm. didn't have to yeah i mean there's two ways of it i mean that that's it i mean that's one way of looking at things if that manual wasn't around then actually people would think oh okay i'm just different and everyone just you know everyone else is different they can just accept me for who i am Mm. but what's happening is i guess think about in a classroom and you might have, what, 30 children and perhaps three or four of those are jumping around the class or there's a, a couple in the corner that, you know, that have difficulty communicating or, ex- you know, expressing their need. And then people are, well, what's wrong with them? Why aren't they behaving like the rest of, you know, the class? Mm. So again, we're <laughs> and so that's, I guess it dates back to, you know, to when we recognize that okay these people aren't like the majority and back in the day uh, people were sent to you know institutions because they behave very differently so mm. which is very a very sad history indeed but, sad mm. but now, and I guess
0: that's where the um the changes in education are coming I think and hopefully a little bit quicker than than it is at the moment but You know, I think of the classroom that I have and all the others and other teachers that I work with the same. Mm -hmm. There is such an array of people in your room and you would sort of almost argue that you know, if you have those 30 people in your room, there's 30 different ways of learning and knowing and growing. And I think, you know, there, I hope that that does change that little book. We will just call it the little book or the big book, actually. It's quite big. But, you know, to change the way and to acknowledge everybody's strengths and embrace how we think differently and have those opportunities to really show who you are, what you know, and what you're learning and what, who you're becoming, I think that's such an important shift for our education system but probably our workplaces as well.
2: Absolutely. And I think there's so many factors that probably need to change because mm-hmm. when I said our environment is also designed for the neurotypical. <laughs> yeah. And that includes you know the design of buildings and we're looking at like light, noise, you know, open plan offices. And I'll walk into a building and I think this just There was no thought put into this in terms of looking at the difference in people, the way they process and experience the world. I mean, I do have sensory sensitivity to really bright light. And, in fact, the fluorescent lights, lighting in a a building, can give me a headache after it. And I'm not the only one. You know, Mm -hmm. There, there are other, you know, I've had colleagues at work also say the same thing. It's the built environment needs to incorporate the neurodiversity. And and so that includes classrooms too.
1: There was a video, it puts things into perspective from a neurodiverse angle, I guess, because Mm. it shows someone walking into like I think it's a cafe Mm. and it amplifies all these little noises that I Mm. might not necessarily take note of, but someone else might like the noise that the actual lights make or Mm. or the you know the clicking sound of something. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. we take things for granted and we don't necessarily think about how things might impact on the experience of others. I actually am finding this a real learning curve in, in how I speak about it. And, you know, my mind's going, oh, don't say the wrong thing, don't say the wrong thing. So- <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. And it is tricky to navigate, isn't
2: it? Mm. And, you know, even, yeah, I mean, I think because there's so, people also get very stressed about you know how we should talk about uh, neurodivergent people you know and autistic people and I think some people prefer the person first and some people prefer identity first so identity first language is I'm autistic and person first is I'm a person with autism so it, it really depends but I usually use identity first because Mm. it's just because a lot of people that I work with would like to have that identity first.
0: I think that's the shift, isn't it, um, Rochelle, that that they're becoming more aware of that being the identity first because that is who we are. And then that sets off that beautiful lens where we can say, well, hang on a moment, you know, say it's Lisa, you know, Mm. and I'm an autistic woman and really proud of that. I can now embrace who I am and also celebrate that. And I think that's the real shift where once upon a time, and probably that DSM-5 is actually the opposite, mm-hmm. where it is it is a weakness and it is something to be cautious of and somehow we have to, as people who are in organisations or schools, we have to fix that. Mm-hmm. we actually, no, we need to embrace it and celebrate it and strengthen that and use their strengths in a way. But also if there are other areas where, like all of us, mm-hmm. where we might have a weakness, how do we change that and learn how to grow in that area? And what supports do we need?
1: That's exactly right. I agree with that. I think about in the workplace, Well, firstly, creating that psychological safety. This is who I am. But also things that I've seen in organisations around, you know, someone who is hands-on, really fantastic at the work they're doing and i'm sure many people can relate to this you see them they are amazing at the work they do and then because of that they move they're moved into a leadership role Mm -hmm. and it's overwhelming for them yes yeah
2: that's right so i mean that's a difference there's also a difference between uh so so quite a lot of neurodivergent people and not all because there are a lot of people with a or a diagnosis of ADHD, mm. <laughs> are energised by people, you know, mm. and like to be around people, but some some aren't. People generally, and I'm talking about as a collective, some people are very task-focused and the autistic brain tends to be like task-focused, um, but that's not all autistic people. So mm. some autistic people, I know some girls that are fascinated with people and they'll draw people and they want to be around people and learn all about people and Imitate people and act like other people, and they're incredible. (laughs) They really, really do. People are their focus, but generally, a lot of autistic people and some people are just very task-focused. So, Mm. when they move into, you know, a, a management role, then you've got to be dealing with people, and people are complex. And people don't always do as they're told <laughs> and you can't make people do things they don't want to do. They're not like chess pieces. <laughs> so it's harder, you know, for people in to manage people when they move into mm. those management roles, they're no, no longer in the thick of what they're enjoying. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then they've got to learn a new language really, and a new way of being and the softer skills, you know, and if you're not inclined to sort of try and step into another person's shoes or understand where they're coming from, uh, you just want the job done, just like you, the way you used to do it, it's recognising everyone's different. And some people really struggle to understand where that other person's coming from. A lot of adults that I see who are autistic say well i just don't understand why they can't work as hard as i work
3: <laughs> and, I think,
2: <laughs> and i don't think they work as hard they're too busy talking and socializing you know uh, mm-hmm. where they should get their head down and work and they don't see the point in you know small talk i saw it was something on linkedin there was an article and it, and it was showing some research that autistic people can work up, up nearly twice as hard their neurotypical colleagues. That's mm. incredible. And whether this is because they have that extraordinary focus, or is it because they're used to sort of working harder than the rest to try and mm. keep up,
0: Or processing too many other processing, things?
2: That's yeah. right. Mm, it's interesting.
0: I wonder if that's where the vulnerability, sorry, I'm jumping in earlier, where (laughs) the vulnerability is in that sort of situation is a good thing to learn in that regardless of who we are, whether we're neurotypical or neurodiverse, is that when we share that with the people we work with about how we work best, Mm-hmm. then other people can have a bit more empathy and compassion for you and you're building a relationship. So, you know, if I'm um, neurodiverse and I come across as being very telling, you know, mm-hmm. do this, do this, but if I've told my, the people I'm working with, look, sometimes I'm going to come and just say do it as it is, this mm-hmm. is why. I think that that's such a really lovely piece to have mm-hmm. to support that growth.
2: Absolutely. So that open communication, you know, this is where I think it's important to be open, even, you know, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, in what position you are at work, you know, as an employee, as a, as a manager. It's about knowing yourself. And this is what I teach. I I do psychoeducation in clinic. I'm not the type of therapist that teaches someone to make eye contact or anything because that's not what should be done. It's thinking about allowing children, young people, adults to discover how they process the world. You know, how do they work best? You know, how, how could you achieve your potential in life? For example, some ADHD brains actually think best when they're moving because and movement is creates, you know, increases dopamine in the brain. Mm. Knowing this about myself and I do know this about myself is that I process things better when I'm moving and up and walking. So I listen to a lot of audiobooks and podcasts and all sorts when I'm walking, people will see me walking around the neighborhood because <laughs> it's just the way my brain works. Yeah. And I've known this about myself for a good while. And then, yeah, scanning things, you know, apps and uh, you know, being able to sort of hear it in audio version.
1: Rochelle, it feels like you're talking about me. Ah, right. <laughs> all of us. We're all the same. Right.
2: Is it one in four people? There's three people here. <laughs> um, same,
0: same and different.
1: <laughs> Everything that you've said so far in our conversation, I have picked out bits and pieces. I've put those on, on myself or someone I love and care about. It's very easy to do that then as you start to listen to things and you, you could very easily jump to conclusions on either side. I guess that makes it quite complex, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, it does. Like you said before,
2: everyone's different, you Mm. know, all, all brains are different. So what makes the difference between the typical and the neurodivergent? I like to look at strengths and when we focus on strengths, a lot of people say, oh, I'm really good at that. And this is how I do it. But sometimes with neurodivergent people, they do struggle quite a lot. And I think it's about the statistics with autistic people. I think is at 16% are in the workforce and it's around sort of the 20% mark. And for a number of reasons, it's because, you know, it's because sometimes people disclose and there's discrimination and there's the interview process is really hard because sometimes people will ask those two-prong questions, and you know, executive function, which is the part of the brain which incorporates quite working memory. You know, the organisation side it helps with someone with emotional regulation, planning, and time management. The task initiation, so beginning a task, and flexibility, so the ability to adapt to changing conditions and it's that part of the brain that neurodivergent people can have difficulty with i have elements of difficulty with that but i've managed to find ways of coping especially with task initiation like i'll break things down into small components right i'm going to do this report i'm going to open my open my laptop <laughs> i'm going to get onto word you know it can be that minute it's like it's so i don't get distracted so i know i put a timer on i'm going to do this 15 minutes i'm going to type away for 15 minutes and i'm going to get up some difficulties can be really, you know, a challenge for a real challenge for some people and not be a challenge, so much of a challenge for others. Yeah. So with executive function, those sorts of difficulties, along with other things, you know, in terms of the sensory can really affect us. Yeah. So that's where the challenge is. And so it's those differences that can make the difference between being able to function and reach your full potential and not do that. But it's going to depend on so many things. good thing about having a diagnosis (laughs) is that people are able to understand themselves a bit better. Mm -hmm. So you know how we we love putting people in boxes? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. People like that as well too in terms of uh, when I thought of myself as someone that has an ADHD brain, that helped a lot. Because trying to focus when I was a child was extremely difficult. I used to daydream all the time and my brain was always thinking about new ideas. And, <laughs> and it's really hard to switch off. So mm-hmm. I find ways to I, I just need sometimes I need constant stimulation, like um thinking about something. I like to do something and then like for example, read. And then sometimes I'll be on my laptop researching, you know, different like papers or you know, it can we I like doing two things at once. <laughs> you can start analyzing me now. But then it's it's also time management that I've had to work on. Being very mindful about what is important and screaming on my to-do list that I need to pay attention to and not the things that I find enjoyable that I'm really drawn to and what interesting that I need to go into. I need to go, right, this is important. It's on the top of my list. And then that task initiation piece. (laughs) So yes, there are many people with ADHD that are autistic, even dyslexic that struggle to get employment, that really struggle in life. And on top of that, there's depression
1: and anxiety. Mm. And this is the other lovely side of neurodivergence. Yeah. The voice of the inner critic often tells us that we're not good enough and we're not worthy or intelligent enough. And I can see how that would play out here. And many neurodiverse people who might be on the spectrum, and I, and I know that that's probably the wrong terminology, so sorry about that, but they may try to hide or, you know, feel like they're fake in some way. Can you explain why this is and how it might hold people back from what they want to achieve in life?
3: Okay.
2: So I think many neurodivergent people recognize from early on that they are different in one way or another, to others around them. For example, even though autism can come with remarkable skills, it can have, you know, it's obvious challenges that we've talked about, such as having difficulties in developing and maintaining friendships, communicating with peers and adults. You know, understanding what behaviours are expected. And so uh, this is you can see this at school and in workplaces, what do I do? And again, like I've said before, they process the world differently and they just need more time. And I guess with these difficulties, they spend time trying to be like others, to catch up, to work harder. And often they spend time trying to develop coping strategies that might be quite time-consuming. You know, and and trying to just trying to keep up with everybody else We're sort of paddling mm-hmm. harder working harder and they mask so masking can involve you know mim- mimicking gestures scripting conversations hiding personal interests even in young children so young children can be themselves um and they feel uh, to a point and then there comes a point where the bullying and the teasing, and the you know being left alone becomes too much, and they might not get to a point where they don't want to go to school. So early on, we've seen neurodivergent children and you know adolescents and and adults hiding their personal interests because they have a fear of being judged for that because they know that their personal interest is not whatever it's not going to be the typical sort of what everyone's talking about. Mm-hmm. And also they might hide their stimming, you know, so some autistic people like dim. I mean, we all stim in a way, um, but, you know, for autistic people it's for a regulation, you know, or enjoyment. So it could be like hair pulling, um, you know, finger tapping or, you know, flapping. I see it in, you know, you see it in small children to try and they use flapping, they flap their hands to, as a way of, regulating their emotion because they might be we call it the happy flap. <laughs> <He is laughs> too. My son did it and still does at times. And you know he'll flap there when he's really excited. And I've seen some teachers actually try and stop children from doing this. Mm. But this is only through the fact that they just don't, they just not aware of the
0: purpose mm.
2: of flapping. Mm. So you know, again it's that you know, it's that awareness piece, isn't it? Um, oh, awareness is so um, important. Yeah. Also, many people that might have a late diagnosis, you know, they might have felt like they've spent half their life trying to be like others. And they don't have a sort of clear perception or sense of of the self as well too. So I see I see this often, that they've been masking their whole life, that actually you know, there's this quiet question of oh, who am I exactly? Mm. I don't really know myself. Yeah. So the late diagnosis can be a bit of a shock. And even then some people say, well, I think they've got it wrong. I think, you know, it's, it's like the diagnosis doubt, you know, mm. I think they've got it wrong. I, I'm, I'm just, you know, not really good enough. I, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm a failure. I'm not really I can't it can't be explained away by this diagnosis so can
0: mm. um, be a relief too though can't it Rochelle I've heard that you know a lot where people have for their whole life have felt like the odd one out and then all of a sudden have had a diagnosis and go oh any wonder now yeah. I understand myself better and now I can actually explore a little bit more about who I am and start really letting those strengths emerge a bit more
2: absolutely and I see this often even in parents bring their children along initially it's really really tricky for them with a diagnosis but then they relax with it and think actually this is this is a real benefit and not only that my child is openly speaking about it and they're, yeah. they're, they're being themselves you know they stop mm-hmm. masking And i saw that in my daughter
3: mm-hmm. so
2: it was hard for her to really understand that but then she started just being herself skipping around the house you know not mm, so good <laughs> yeah She's got a beautiful voice too, singing. There's <laughs> the yeah. <a> creative piece. <laughs> yeah, that's right, exactly. And she was happier. And I saw this and just happier just to be herself. And finally, oh, this is the reason. This is the reason why, because my brain works differently. Yeah. So incredible to see that. And studies have shown, I, I don't have the exact studies here, but, you know, st- studies are you know, have shown that um, masking can Increase anxiety and depression. Mm. And it makes sense too. Many people will doubt their skills, you mm-hmm. know, and many people doubt their skills, any accomplishments that they've made and their talents. Mm-hmm. They'll just dismiss them because they, they're used to that feeling of not just not being enough. Mm. Mm. And many are perfectionists, and this is one thing I struggle with as a perfectionist, high uh, tendencies. And then if you've got really high standards, you're never going to be able to sort of meet those standards, and you're con- and you're working harder. When does it stop? You know, mm. When is it going to be perfect? And another thing as well is the analytical mind. You know, extremely analytical minds. You'll find that there's when a lot of autistic people, uh, for example, are engineers, but many um, accountants, doctors, lawyers. You know, lawyers have very analytical minds and they're very good with language you find that there's a quite a lot of autistic lawyers <laughs> and you know that analytical mind is always thinking and always working it has a tendency also to look for what's coming on the horizon what's what's dangerous what do I need to watch out for yeah. and overthinking you know this which can create you know stress and um anxiety obviously so um Yeah, and I think it's just the way the brain is functioning that drives a sort of anxiety, but also people's experiences of not being good enough and feeling of just not being enough.
1: And I've seen in the workplace, I've seen terrible behaviour around, you know, someone being different in the workplace Mm. and people being judgmental, making fun of that, you know, all of that then impacts even more on that person who might not have that diagnosis, might be struggling with who am I even and compounded by this hard experience of feeling judged. I think as humans, we can be quite cruel and sometimes not even meaning to, like sometimes we're blind, but I I can see how all of this fits in and can really impact the experience of whether it is a, a child or an adolescent an adult if you're not awake to your strengths and perhaps not having that support and being able to be your true self I can see how it impacts how we all show up
2: absolutely and I think I mean we do learn from uh, from others and I think what's important is I mean the key word that came to my mind when you were speaking Leanne was compassion
3: Mm.
2: and I think compassion is so important so if we're not showing compassion when we're growing up we're not really going to show that self-compassion as an adult mm. we play some of those recordings in our head
0: mm.
3: um,
2: that I we're think, not good enough
0: yeah I was just thinking also about being open-minded and I think this is for everyone is that you know it's like, like how I see it in schools particularly but also in organisations. When you are compassionate and you have empathy and you're curious, you are more likely to look for the good in people, regardless of who they are, rather than be judgmental and just look for what's bad in them. Now, that happens too often in organisations, but I do think there's a shift, particularly with the positive psychology and also, I suppose, the new waves of that where we're thinking about an us culture, you know, a we rather than a me. But I think that hopefully will change, you know, the trajectory, I can't even say that word so hard, (laughs) of the diversity and and the importance of diversity in our cultures, wherever that might be. You know, there is so much richness in learning from others. Ladies, I'm mindful of time. Mm. I really want to ask about your book, All Except Winston. Are you okay if I ask you that
2: question? I have a story in my head just about, you know, this giraffe. I just saw this giraffe. There's been very different from the rest of his group and I was thinking I just want this very simple story about how a giraffe is just seen as different and then how he's he saves the day and with his strength but not actually speaking about the strength but he is visibly short but all the the giraffes were just ostracizing him so and in everything they did the drinking eating playing and just sort of you know, that story. I mean, there's plenty of times I've been into the playground of a school and seen a child just on their own, looking down, following the perimeter of mm-hmm. the school ground and following the line all around the playground all by themselves.
1: Oh, breaks your heart.
2: Um, it really came to me because I thought, you know, not only that, so this child, you know, these children left on their own, you know, being rejected by peers but also as a psychologist with this child sitting in front of me and drawing these amazing drawings, you know. I just want one little boy in particular that I remember, the detailed drawings. You're incredible. You're absolutely amazing. But nobody seeing this amazing child, you know, for who he is and his peers not seeing that. So I wanted to make a story about a giraffe <laughs> who had an ability to save his group from a lion it was a very very simple story and the illustrations sort of speak more than the words and it was for preschoolers so but I it just the story came to me it was almost
1: like I downloaded it it was in my brain <laughs> and I needed to get it out what a what a <laughs> wonderful way um for you to tap into your creativity and what a wonderful gift for us all thank you for sharing all about your wonderful book besides this book can you recommend an app a podcast or TED talk for our listeners yes uh there's a really lovely TED talk
2: by Elizabeth Wicklander and it's called Neurodiversity the key that unlocked my world and she's a musician and I think she was speaking about how she discovered that she was autistic and how that cha- really changed her, her oh, understanding beautiful. of herself. Yeah, so it's, it's really good. And I've recommended that to quite a lot of people.
1: Okay, we'll be sure to share that in the show yeah. notes. If people want to connect with you or find out more about the wonderful work that you're doing, where can they find you?
2: The best place is, is LinkedIn, really. Sure. Thank you for that. Fantastic.
0: We often ask our guests a little bit about a self-care strategy that they have. Is there a self-care strategy that you would love to share with our listeners today that is something simple, beautiful and uniquely you?
2: Okay. So, I mean, I have quite a few self-care strategies. (laughs) Um, I think one that really, that I love and that is, you know, being able to go out into nature and take my shoes off. <laughs> yeah. um, so you know just going to a beach, even going to a park and it's you know it's it's grounding, you know being able to take your shoes off, being able to sort of walk around and you don't have to even take your shoes off. It's just getting out into nature mm. and noticing that using all of your senses to notice what's around you. And I absolutely love nature and birds. I love listening to birds. And I think, you know, knowing myself and the way I process the world, in a sense, I love my, you know, being able to listen to things (laughs) and, yeah, really listening to the birds and looking around at my environment, being out in nature. I mean, there's plenty of studies that can relate to that look at well-being, improvements in well-being through, you know, being in nature and just being mindful, I think, you know, of what's around you and being in the present moment. It's yeah, yeah, bringing of the mind because my mind's always active and going, and you know, it slows us
0: down, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, it slows, and I do need to be slowed down. Mm. What a lovely, mindful approach of of tuning into those senses to provide a a resting place for your mind to ground yourself, as you mentioned. That's Mm -hmm. just such a lovely approach. Look, we are so so grateful for Mm -hmm. the time with you today. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to speak with you. Thank you, Leanne and Lisa. Such a pleasure,
0: Rochelle.
2: Thank you so much, yeah. <laughs> My, yeah, it's a privilege. Thank you.
0: Oh, that was beautiful, Leanne, and thank you so much for uh, meeting Rochelle. What a great find she is, just such a beautiful human.
1: I just I remember meeting her and just thinking we've got to speak to you. So many things to think so about. Wisdom. yes. So much perspective there's just so much there and i think it really puts the light on the importance to being awake to this
0: absolutely i really really appreciated the way she was able to explain that neurodiversity but also the strengths in you know you know that neurodiversity and how these people show up and really show their talents and strengths and i think that that's such a great gift for all of us really see things differently and see people differently and the best ways that they learn and also for people who have a neurodiversity how they can bring their strengths forward and not hide them not think they're the odd one out but actually it might feel like you're the odd one out but in actual fact you've got so much to offer
1: yeah that perspective of not looking at it as a disorder yeah but rather just being wired a little bit differently and having so many gifts to bring.
0: And contributions to make. You know, there are so many people that their brain does think differently, but they can be the dreamers, the adventurers, the change makers, the pioneers. You know, they are the people that we need to have in our workplaces, in our schools, to learn from and to think differently. Yeah. Just loved it. It was wonderful.
1: Oh. All right. bye. well, Bye-bye for now, everyone. Okay. And thank you for listening to the Imperfect Us podcast. As always, we are extremely grateful to our executive producer, Brenton Ainsworth, for helping us to put this episode together. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with someone you care about and we would be grateful if you could rate this podcast on iTunes. To continue the conversation and see what we're up to, you can connect with us on LinkedIn. Just search for Imperfect Us. Bye for now.